We're continuing our study in the seven signs of, uh, in John's gospel this morning. Uh, John told us near the end of his gospel why he included these sign miracles. He wrote in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So it's a twofold purpose for these signs. First, to believe both that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and that he is God the Son. And second, to have life in his name. That's the point of John's gospel, and specifically of John including these seven signs. And John chooses these seven miracles because each one reveals something about Jesus as the Christ that John wants us to know and to believe. The first week we looked at Jesus changing water to wine. And in addition to that being an amazing miracle that demonstrated his creative power, it also functioned as an object lesson. It pointed us to his death and to the kingdom that he would eventually establish. Then last week, we looked at the healing of the official's son. And that was about belief. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What kind of belief leads a person to having life in his name? This morning, we're going to consider a healing that Jesus performed at a pool in Jerusalem. And here, our focus is going to be on the personal nature of Jesus' ministry, of his messiahship. How he comes to each one of us individually, and not just as an anonymous member of a large group. Before we look at that miracle, though, I want to take you to another passage in another gospel that deals with Jesus as the Messiah. This is in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry here. And on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, which was his custom. And it says in verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This passage from Isaiah is a prophecy about the Messiah. And they all understood that. The Messiah literally means the anointed one. And the person in the passage here is identified in that way. So when Jesus says in verse 21, after reading the passage, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he is claiming that he is the fulfillment. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. But notice what the signs are. Notice what the Messiah is sent for. To proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and liberty for those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the Messiah that they were waiting for. But now think about Jesus' earthly ministry. If these are the things that the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to do, and if Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of this, did Jesus proclaim good news to the poor? Well, yes, he proclaimed good news to everyone. But the good news that he proclaimed didn't have anything to do with their material poverty. He didn't make any promises to them of money or earthly wealth. Nor did he do anything to provide them with economic relief. And during his earthly ministry... He didn't liberate any captives, at least not the kind who are kept in physical prisons or who are bound with physical chains. His cousin, and possibly his best friend, John the Baptist, was thrown into prison. Did Jesus liberate him? No, not from Herod's prison. And he was eventually beheaded there. Jesus did heal some who were blind, who were physically blind. In fact, one of the miracles that we're going to look at in a few weeks deals with blindness. But following that miracle, Jesus indicates that the real blindness that he came to heal was spiritual blindness. Likewise, those who were oppressed and those uh, and the year of the Lord's favor, the focus of Jesus' ministry was never on social justice. If the Messiah's primary ministry had been to address economic and physical and social needs, then Jesus seems to have missed the mark. Because he didn't do many of those things. And even in the one area that he did address, of those that are listed here, 
blindness, it seems clear that physical blindness was always a representation of spiritual blindness. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that the physical miracles that Jesus did always pointed to a greater spiritual purpose. Yes, Jesus had compassion on the sick, and he desired to heal them physically. There's no doubt about that. But his primary ministry was always much deeper than that. And so as we turn to John chapter 5, and we consider this healing ministry, I want us to keep that in mind. I want us to keep in mind that Jesus comes to this place where there were invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That this does describe a factual event, and those people with those physical issues were there. But it also describes us spiritually. We were all spiritual invalids when we first encountered Jesus. Spiritually blind, lame, and paralyzed. So follow along now as I read from John 5 about this miracle. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 9. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, they're in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which, is, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, now as I read that, some of you might have noticed something unusual. Depending on which translation you're using, it may have seemed like I got partway through verse 3 and then skipped ahead to verse 5. In fact, if you look at the English Standard Version, which is what I typically preach from, you'll see that the text does jump from that point in verse 3 to verse 5. And you'll also see that there's a footnote there that explains what's going on. The footnote tells us that some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, and then it gives us what some translations include as the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. 
that these afflicted people were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Other translations, like the New King James, also include a footnote, but, but they handle it a little differently. They include this portion in the body of the text, and then they use the footnote to tell the readers that some manuscripts don't have it. Still others, like the New American Standard Bible, they kind of split the difference. They put this in the text itself, so it's there, but they noticeably separate it from the rest of the text by bracketing it off. And then they also include a footnote. So how are we supposed to know what we're supposed to make of this? If, if this is God's word, if this is part of God's holy, inspired, authoritative word, then it needs to be there. Nobody has any business taking verses out of the Bible. But on the other hand, if it's not really part of God's word, if it isn't part of what God inspired John to write, then by the same token, nobody has any business adding things that God didn't say. In fact, elsewhere, God has some pretty serious things to say about people who put words into his mouth, who say that he said things that he didn't say. So we need to know. And I'm going to take a little bit of time to deal with some of the things that we need to know to reach the right conclusion regarding passages like this one. It is our conviction that the original text, what John the Apostle wrote under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, is what is infallible and inerrant. That is the Word of God. Any copies or translations that come afterward are subject to error, no matter how careful the scribe or the translator was. It's the original text that is inerrant and perfect. The problem is, we don't have the original document. We have copies. We have a lot of copies. And they are largely consistent. Remarkably so, really. So we have a great deal of confidence that we know what the original said for the vast majority of the text. But there are some differences from copy to copy. And mostly these are minor differences, usually not much more than a word or two. And it's often easy to see where the error or the change happened. And, and it usually doesn't affect the meaning at all. However, there are a few cases, like this one, where it's a little more complicated than that. Here, it's, it's more than just a verse. And it does add something to the story. 
It describes a way that God deals with men that you wouldn't get from anywhere else in the Bible. So we need to know how to think about this. So first, let's talk about the manuscripts a little bit, which are our source for what's in God's Word. Now, the first partial copies, manuscript fragments that we have, are only about 50 years or so after John wrote his Gospel. But but the first complete manuscripts are from about 100 to 150 years after John wrote. So they come from the end of the second century or the beginning of the third century. That is the end of the 100s or the beginning of the 200s. And all of those early manuscripts have the text of John 5 without the end of verse 3 or any of verse 4. And these continued to be, to be copied this way um, within this version of the text throughout the centuries. Then, about 200 years later, in the late 4th century or the early 5th century, manuscripts started showing up with the end of verse 3, but still without verse 4. And we have a number of those that continue on from there. Later in the 5th century, we get some manuscripts that have verse 4, but not the end of verse 3. Although there aren't very many of these. And it isn't until the 9th century, approximately 700 years after John wrote this gospel, that we finally get Greek manuscripts with all of verses 3 and 4. Now, those are the first Greek manuscripts with the end of 3 and verse 4. There were some Latin manuscripts earlier than that that had those verses. But John wrote in Greek, not in Latin. So just looking at this, it seems fairly clear that these verses in question were not part of what John wrote. That some scribe was trying to clarify things and he added it. And it seems likely that the first person to add these extras did so in Latin and not in Greek. And then it was later read back into the Greek based on those Latin texts. Now, so if this is the case, and, and they weren't really there until hundreds of years after John wrote, how did they end up in any of our English Bibles? Well, in the early 1500s, there was a Catholic scholar named Erasmus. And he set out to revise the New Testament portion of the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the Latin Bible that was used by the Roman Catholic Church. And and what he set out to do needed to be done. The Vulgate had originally been translated by Jerome in the 4th century. And there were issues with it. Erasmus' goal was then to publish it. 
to make it available for a larger audience. And, and this was possible because the printing press had been invented in the previous century. But to do this work, he needed to use the Greek New Testament. He needed to do that to ensure that the, the Latin was fa as faithful as possible to the original. But you couldn't just pull up the Greek New Testament on the internet like you can today. You couldn't go down to a, a local library or to your church or even to a university and find multiple copies of every variation of the text. So Erasmus had to use the manuscripts that he could find. And he was able to obtain five or six manuscripts. However, the manuscripts that he got were later manuscripts. And it makes sense that those would have been the ones that he was able to find and able to afford. But they had this reading of John 5. They included this, this extra part of verse 3 and verse 4. So this is what he used for his work on the Vulgate. And then when he published it, he also published a Greek New Testament alongside it, obviously based on the same manuscripts. Now, this isn't intended to be critical of him, at least not regarding his work on this. This is what he had to work with. And what he did was a monumental accomplishment. For the first time in history, there was now a printed version of the Greek New Testament available. And that was a huge benefit for scholars and for students of God's Word. This is the Greek New Testament that Martin Luther used when he did his German translation. This is what William Tyndale did when he did the first English translation. Neither of those might have been possible without this Greek New Testament available. Now, over the next century, there were a few revisions made to Erasmus's uh, Greek New Testament, and then it's what was used by the King James scholars to translate the King James Bible. And that happened in the early 1600s. And it's because that's what they had. That's what was available. And it's a blessing that it was. Even with these few inconsistencies, it was an incredibly valuable thing to have a printed version of the Greek text. It later came to be called the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text. And it remained the primary Greek text that we had until the late 1800s. So that's why a bit more than a verse, which clearly was not part of what John wrote, ended up in some of our older English translations. And, and before we move on, I want to point out that it's not just this external evidence 
what we've been talking about up to this point with the manuscripts. That's external evidence. But there's also internal evidence that points to these verses not being part of the original. The passage doesn't ring true. It isn't consistent with anything that we have anywhere else in Scripture. The idea that God sent an angel periodically to stir up this pool, and then it was some kind of a contest, a a, a race, and, and whoever got into the pool fastest, whoever won the race, God would heal that person as their prize for beating everyone else into the pool. Clearly, that's what some people thought during Jesus' time. But it was a legend. It was a myth of the pool. It's simply not what God does. Imagine if if Jesus did this. And I know this almost sounds sacrilegious. But imagine if Jesus lined up all the invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. and, And he said, okay, when I say go, the first one who gets to me gets healed. Of course Jesus doesn't do that. And neither does God the Father. Now, not because it doesn't fit my idea of what God should or shouldn't do, but because it's wholly inconsistent with everything else that we read in Scripture. Now, we need to be careful with that kind of reasoning. We can't just take something that we don't like in Scripture and call it inconsistent and then conclude that it must not be part of the original. But when we have something like this that's coupled with overwhelming external evidence, it's fair and reasonable to draw this conclusion. Now, I realize that that was a bit of a digression, but I think it's important for two reasons. One, we need to understand what is and what is not God's Word and to have confidence in that. And two, if we're going to understand this passage accurately, as God intended, we need to recognize that God does not heal us based on our own performance. Let me say that again. God does not heal you or bless you in any way based on your performance or on your merit or on anything that you can accomplish. And and the suggestion that he would runs so counter to everything else that he reveals about himself in his word. Okay, so let's work through the text. A verse at a time, starting with verse one. In verse 1, it says that Jesus went to Jerusalem for a feast. It could be any of three feasts that Jewish men were commanded to attend annually. And John mentions a particular gate into the city called the Sheep Gate. It was called the Sheep Gate because this is where they brought the sheep into the city for the temple sacrifices. And and apparently, this is how Jesus entered the city on this visit. Now, the gate that Jesus used, or, or its location near this pool, it's kind of a superfluous detail. And yet, John mentions it here. 
And I think there's a reason. As we've seen before, John likes these kind of details when he can use them to communicate some deeper meaning. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus will eventually come to Jerusalem to be the ultimate sacrifice. Now, now that's nothing that we don't know already. And John will remind us of it again later on, more than once. But I believe that John includes it here as a subtle hint that gives depth to this story. So the Lamb of God, the Christ, comes into the city by the sheep gate and he encounters multitudes of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, based on what we saw earlier in Luke with regard to the Messiah's true mission, is this not a perfect representation of that? That Jesus came into the world, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and before him lay a multitude of spiritual invalids, the spiritually blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, I'm not suggesting that this isn't to be taken first as historical fact. This is an actual miracle that Jesus performed. But it's also a sign. It has greater meaning. It's an object lesson that tells us more about Jesus as the Christ. And I think we're starting to see what the greater meaning is. Now, elsewhere, Jesus voiced this same symbolism between physical and spiritual sickness. In Mark 2, verse 16, it says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors? And sinners. And when Jesus heard it in verse 17, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus explicitly compared sinners to those who are sick. And he told us that his ministry is to heal them both physically and spiritually. Only John subscribes to the writer's maxim, show, don't tell. So John uses this sign miracle to show the same truth that Mark tells us in Jesus' response to those scribes. So, so what does Jesus do here? What would you expect Jesus to do? What would you expect someone who had all of this power and whose mission is to rescue the afflicted, what would you expect him to do? Perhaps he should find a, a central place among the colonnades, maybe at the head of the pool, and get everyone's attention, and then announce, everyone, get up, pick up your mats, walk, see, be healed, be made whole. All at once. Would that have been within his ability? Could he have pulled that off? Of course he could have. 
He could have done all that with power to spare. But he didn't. He never does that. Instead, in verse 5, it says, one man was there. Jesus focused on one man. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus singled out one man out of the multitude, and he went to him personally. Jesus' healing is always personal. Physical healings, spiritual healings. You don't get healed as part of the crowd. You might be in the crowd, and Jesus might heal everyone in the crowd. But healing is personal. And that's what we see here. Now, this can't be the most efficient way to run a ministry. This can't be the easiest way to grow and multiply a movement if growth and multiplication are your main concerns. But Jesus zeroes in on an individual. He makes it personal. And he asked him, he asked the invalid, do you want to be healed? Why ask that question? Of course he wants to be healed. Jesus knew that. He asked because he wanted to have this interaction with him, however brief it was. Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him in verse 7, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. What do we make of the man's answer? Jesus wanted him to express what he thought needed to be involved in his healing. And the man revealed that he was counting on human effort, at least in part, for his healing. He thought he had to earn it or or, or win it by being the first one into the pool. Now, it's not that he wouldn't have welcomed help from somebody else to get into the pool, but it still came down for him to being the first one into the water. And when he says, I have no one to put me into the pool, there might even be a hint of bitterness there, that he hasn't received help from his friends the way others may have. But his hope was not for God's mercy. His hope was in performing the right act, on his own or with help, in order to gain that healing. And Jesus immediately shows him, that's not how it works. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. There's nothing the man had to do, nothing he had to perform in order to gain this. There's nothing he could do to earn it. Jesus simply 
calls him. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus asked the question, do you want to be healed? And he allowed the man to respond with what he thought was necessary for healing. So that Jesus could defy his false hope and issue the effective call. Jesus heals with his call based on his own righteousness and his sacrificial death. But it is the call that we hear when Jesus heals us. We saw this earlier in Mark 2. Jesus came to heal the sick. He came to call sinners. And he makes the point. It's not the righteous he calls. He calls you while you are still a sinner, not after you've done something to become righteous, not after you've done something to earn the call. The Apostle Paul tells us the same thing. In Romans 8, he describes the process whereby God calls you and where it is in that process that you are called. In verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. See, the call comes before the justification. And he is the one who justifies. He does this. He calls you to it while you are still a sinner, unworthy of his call. And then he justifies you. Another verse from Paul, one I know is meaningful to a few of you, is 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's all on him. He is the one who will bring it to pass. Notice there was nothing required of the man at the pool. Indeed, there was nothing that was possible for the man at the pool until after he was healed. Jesus called him. Jesus healed him. And then the man was able to take up his bed and walk. Now, there is obvious evangelistic implication in this message. Jesus calls you, Jesus heals you without any help from you, and then your walk begins. But there's application for us as believers as well. Because even as redeemed men and women, saved by God's grace, alone, and by nothing of our own doing, we can start to revert to the mindset of the invalid at the pool, to the mindset of the scribe who thought he was helping when he added verse 4, and to start to think that there is something that I must do to gain God's favor. But that's not grace. That's not the gospel. When we think that God's favor depends on our righteousness. Not at all. God's 
favor does not depend on my righteousness. Rather, my righteousness depends on God's favor. This is the way we need to continue to relate to the Savior. Those areas in my life where sin remains, I can't fix them. But as I continue to hear His call, and He heals me, then I can walk. So I urge you this morning, as Paul urged the Philippians, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But the call always comes first, and it is an effective call. He does the work so that we can walk in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of this. Thank you that you do not require anything on our part because we are wholly incapable of doing anything apart from us. Thank you that you initiate it, Father. And Father, we pray that you would continue to initiate it in the lives of everyone here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.